Ever hear about the physics circus? Learn about it next on the K-12 Engineering Education Podcast. I'm Pius Wong in Austin, Texas. Joseph Siegel and Jordan Zesch are coordinators of the Physics Circus, a part of the University of Texas at Austin. Joseph talked to me about how it's been going these last years, from back when they did live shows to when they moved online like a lot of us, to now, when their in-person shows are coming back. Welcome to the K-12 Engineering Education Podcast, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I'm glad to have you on. You're representing the Physics Circus at the University of Texas at Austin. Could you tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do over at the Physics Circus? Absolutely, yeah. So primarily, Jordan and I are grad students, but as uh, half of our work here at UT, we coordinate the Physics Circus, which is to say that we take in requests from schools, we organize the willing presenters to go do the shows at the schools, and make sure that they get paid, make sure we get paid, and essentially run most of the entire thing. And we can talk about what the shows look like, too, if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I guess before I get down into those details, just broadly, if someone doesn't know what the Physics Circus is, like outside Texas, Mm -hmm. uh, outside Austin, what is it? We are an outreach group dedicated to trying to show students of all ages, all backgrounds, that science is for them. Um, we take inspiration from people like Carl Sagan or Bill Nye, who try to show how cool and fun science can be, while also inspiring young minds to hopefully, when they grow up, keep asking questions and keep being engaged with their science classes. And what's interesting about what you said, Joseph, is that you said science to make sure kids know that science is cool, not just physics. And I'm curious what your opinion is on that. Is it that you're focusing on all branches of science? Yeah, it it is a pretty uh, interesting distinction, right? So we are physics students and our our money comes from the physics department or from the Center for Natural Science at UT. And our demonstrations, we tend to approach them from a physics point of view. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of that is because when you're learning a lot about introductory physics, especially from an elementary school perspective, you're thinking about states of matter, you're thinking about atoms, you're thinking about the various ways of the world works, a lot of that is introductory physics. And so it's a great way to try to engage with students with a topic that they're probably going to be learning about fairly soon. That is, if they haven't already learned about it. But yeah, mm-hmm. when, when we talk about it, we want to make sure that we're not being exclusive. You know, We don't want to go out there and say that physics is the only field worth talking about or, or <laughs> worth doing. Engineering, which is applied physics, or you could say that physics is theoretical engineering, whichever way you want it, chemistry, biology, psychology, neuroscience, all of these all of these sciences are all good. And part of our work is to make sure that students don't feel disenfranchised from any of them mm-hmm. uh, because of where they grew up or what sort of education they got. We want them to be excited about asking questions. And tell me about the kids or the students that you're talking to. Are they mostly elementary or do you reach out to more than them? It's definitely gotten uh, interesting over the course of the pandemic. We had a lot of plans <laughs> to try to sure. uh, expand outwards, and then that kind of got curtailed because everything got switched to virtual. And all of our grand schemes and plots to to reach out to more people and improve the circus, well, it all had to get shunted into being able to provide a virtual product, which yeah. took away most of our time. But now that we're getting back to to being able to see 
our students in person. We're definitely planning on expanding outwards to be able to reach middle school, even high school, and potentially young undergraduates. For now, though, most of our work is with elementary schools, um, say pre-K through five. So I do want to get into that question of what your shows look like, what the circus actually looks like for those audiences. It seems like that's really two questions, pre-pandemic or or post-pandemic, I guess. I don't know if we'll ever be post-pandemic, but in-person versus online. Can you tell me a little bit about your in-person stuff? Yeah, absolutely. What we like to do is keep our script or our show consistent so that our presenters, as they continue to work with it, they're going to get better and better. They're going to know which parts students are going to have questions about and which parts to really put some flair into. So we have a, it's about an hour long show where we discuss the states of matter and we play with some liquid nitrogen, which is always a fun time. We do some cool interactions that the kids just, they don't see coming. And then we try to explain to them afterwards how we can understand why it happened. And they usually love it. We move on to talking about air pressure, another one of those topics where it's hard to get an intuitive sense of what's going to happen until you see it happen in front of you. So we'll play with vacuum chambers or um, large bags of air and see who can inflate theirs the fastest. After that, we'll switch to a little bit of electricity because electricity is always a fun topic. And in today's day and age, you can't get away with not knowing something about electricity, right? It's all around us. And then just for fun, we blow some stuff up at the end because who doesn't love a good explosion? Uh, Sure. Yeah. Like when I think physics, I think of explosions. So how do you engage these kids? Is is it just explosions or what is different about, say, you all and a typical science classroom? Some of it is our access to materials. A typical science classroom, I would guess, can't get a lot of liquid nitrogen on a budget and uh, work with it. Whereas since we're at UT, we've got huge huge stores of liquid nitrogen that our researchers Mm. use, and we can just snag a little bit of it. We pay them a Mm -hmm. little bit of money. And when you have that much of it, it's actually relatively cheap to keep. And so we can go around and uh, put on these large demonstrations that normally they might not be able to do very often at a school. Mm -hmm. Part of the other aspect to it is that we're novel. You know, we're not their science teacher. We are Usually uh, younger, unless they have a newer teacher, since we're grad students, we're uh, early 20s. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully the kids can see that, you know, you don't have to be, say, Albert Einstein in a lab coat to be doing science. Their teacher might be their teacher and they could learn science from them, but it might be difficult to describe their teacher as a scientist. We come in and we try to impress on them that anyone can be a scientist. And just because we're new, maybe they'll uh, be a bit more excited to listen to us. (laughs) Do they know that you're new scientists versus quote unquote old scientists? Or like, is there a difference, I guess, in how they relate to you versus other folks? That's actually one of the first things we try to do at each show. We try to have a discussion about what science is. And uh, we talk about uh, a good quote from Albert Einstein, which is that anyone who asks a question is a scientist. And so we get them into the mindset already that, hey, we are grad students. We're not that old. At at least we haven't been in the field for that long. But here we are doing cool science. And it won't be that long until you can do the same thing. And you're already scientists because you've asked a question before. Mm -hmm. Um, One of our demos halfway through the show or so kind of harkens back to this where we talk about how we've been in school for uh, 20 years or so, and have a lot of books lined up. And they usually get a a chuckle out of that. 
I, I imagine being being five or six years old and thinking, man, I have to be in school for 20 more years. <sighs> but we try to make it fun for them. Sure, sure. Uh, speaking of fun, you mentioned like many topics of physics, the basic tenets, I guess, of physics uh, that you demonstrate there. And I'm thinking about electricity. How do you introduce electricity to elementary school kids? I was only thinking, first of all, the Van der Graaff generator, just because I was at the local museum that taught me about you, that told me about you. They have a Van der Graaff generator that makes your hair you know, go up with static electricity. Is there anything else that you can do to engage kids with electricity? Well, the Van der Graaff generator is a huge part of it. You're absolutely right. Oh, okay. Awesome. But we usually start as simple enough with uh, just two balloons, usually a red and a blue, but it's whatever colors we can get our hands on at the time, and try to explain the concept of opposite charges. Uh, sometimes the outgoing kids will, will shout electrons at us or that sort of thing, but we typically don't want to get into that deep of a level talk about it because mm. it gets complicated. But if we just focus on opposite charges and then we explain how the Van de Graaff generator works, we can build up towards our perhaps coup de gras for our electricity demonstration where we turn a pickle into a light bulb. Ooh, okay. And it's, it's about as smelly as it sounds. Uh, it usually gets pretty fried, but it's as simple as putting two leads into a pickle and uh, hooking it up uh, just to your outlet voltage. Although you want to be oh, careful wow. not to uh, hurt yourself. But as long yeah. as you're taking the necessary precautions, there's really no risk. And the pickle will start to spark and light up uh, and smell pretty badly. But usually the audience is far enough away or they don't notice too quickly. Sure. And I imagine like anyone listening to this podcast, they if it's a physics teacher, chemistry teacher, whatever, they would do this safely. They aren't just going to run out and do it after listening to this. Um, and, and likewise for explosions, are there safe explosions that you all can do in the presence of kids? Absolutely. What are yeah, they? Absolutely. There's there's two big ones and one, maybe not an explosion, but it, it certainly gets them excited. The first thing we do is uh, we just take an Erlenmeyer flask, put a, some liquid nitrogen in it, and we just stopper it. We make sure we don't point it at anyone, uh, huh. but eventually the pressure will build up as the liquid nitrogen boils to a gas, and the rubber cork will will pop off. The rubber stopper pops off, and it's uh, it's a decent noise. You know, it's not a big massive explosion but uh, there's a nice sharp bang the uh, stopper goes flying and the kids usually are very excited especially if you're clever with how you plan it you make sure to uh, uh, act as if you're surprised too like oh man why am i such a weakling and i can't get this stopper in here let's try that again and that one gets them pretty excited and it's neat because that builds into the first of our finale explosions where we do a similar thing but replace the erlenmeyer flask with a soda bottle now, if we screw the cap onto that, the pressure is going to build up and you're not just going to pop the cap off. The bottle's going to rupture and that'll explode. And it's a nice big sound. There is the potential of flying plastic. So what we do is we keep that inside uh, what's essentially an industrial garbage bin. It's a little bit thicker plastic than maybe your kitchen bin, but not much. And we put the bottle with the liquid nitrogen in the bin and cover it. Now, that's not an airtight seal, but it's sealed enough so that when the bottle uh, does eventually pop, none of the plastic goes flying anywhere. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But you get a big bang and maybe the lid of the garbage can goes flying. Make sure the students are back, say, 15 feet so they don't get hit by that. Yeah. Um, even if they you – know, I don't want to say even if they did get hit, but it's just the garbage can lid. We're minimizing <laughs> the risk there. Sure. That's good. 
Uh, So it sounds like you're thinking of the science, the safety for sure. It strikes me that the personality of the presenters is super important. I can tell talking to you, Joseph, that you, you know what you're talking about, but I bet you're kind of a performer as well. How do you get the right people or train, I guess, people to deal with young kids in that way to be engaging? Oh, that's a great question. And it's actually one of our uh, biggest year-to-year problems um, because the graduate student turnover rate is about every five years, five to six years, they'll graduate and move on. But uh, their turnover rate in the circus is shorter than that even because it takes Mm. maybe a year for them to get adjusted to grad life and for us to recruit them and and show them how it works. Mm -hmm. Um, And then likewise for us to get them involved in the physics circus and show them how the physics circus works and how to do that. And then they'll be around for a couple of years, but they'll probably take their last year off away from the physics circus so they can focus on their thesis and get graduated. So we really get like this nice three-year window with our uh, presenters. And yeah, it's difficult because while UT Austin is massive, you know, it's it's something like 50,000 students, while maybe five to 10,000 or so, I don't have the numbers in front of me, is uh, grad students. And of that, it's going to be a couple hundred physics. Yeah. At the end of the day, it runs down to maybe 10 or so presenters at any yeah. given time that we have to work with. And so the numbers is a uh, is usually the biggest concern. Can we just get someone to be involved with us? Oh, okay. So as long as they're interested, that's like the the biggest factor. Mm-hmm. Usually, it correlates where if they're interested, they've they've done outreach before, or they uh, sure. they're involved enough that uh, it doesn't take too much to train them to uh, be able to present and talk to kids. Usually, they've done something like this in their undergraduate work. And I'm wondering also about when you were doing stuff streaming. I'm thinking, what was that like? Was that any different? It was really different. I mean, we got through most of the pandemic, hopefully, and we can get back to in-person now. So I'm not too Mm -hmm. uh, afraid to say that it was quite demoralizing for a lot of the presenters. Mm -hmm. Uh, We we have an endowment, so it's no cost to the schools, and we can pay our presenters for their time. But the biggest reward is being able to see the kids, being able to interact directly and, and see how excited they get. It's, I mean, it's worth more than any money anyone could give us. And when we do it virtually, you don't get that sort of interaction. You don't get that reward. Um, Mm -hmm. You don't get to engage directly. And now sometimes the schools would have the videos on and we could see the kids reacting. But the presenters who are doing the demos can't see that. Only the moderator can. Mm -hmm. A lot of our presenters got disheartened. Uh, Some of them kind of started to fade into the background a bit, not uh, not wanting to be as engaged anymore because it wasn't as rewarding. And so it was definitely a struggle beyond the technical and logistics side. It was a struggle just to keep everyone engaged. So we're hoping that we can move past that now mm-hmm. uh, but get back to the exciting in-person work. Um, is there anything you all learned during this time that maybe you could carry forward as you go on in person again? Absolutely, yeah. I think it was helpful sort of as an introspective look at our own demos, for one, without all of the kids and without all of the excitement of just being there in person, it was easier for us to see which demos were perhaps more visually exciting or more stimulating and which ones Mm. might need some work. Uh, For example, a lot of our electricity stuff, while it's novel and interesting to talk about, 
it's not quite as visually appealing as perhaps some of the liquid nitrogen stuff. So that was helpful. And since we were doing virtual, we did shorter shows. And I think we've we might start adapting that into our in-person shows in the future to uh, see if we can do a shorter presentation, but then do it serially and, and have maybe more presentations per school mm. that, it, that are slightly shorter. We might be able to get a more engaging response if the crowd is a bit smaller, but we do more shows. It's something we're playing out with. Yeah, yeah. So you're going to go out into schools as you did before. And do you typically have demonstrations for just individual classes or something? Or is that just variable? We will do individual classrooms. I've done a show for uh, an in-person show for as few as I think 10 kids once. Hmm. But typically, our shows are hundreds of kids. We'll go to uh, the cafeteria or if they have an auditorium or something like that at the school. And they'll bring in, say, all of the second and third graders at once. And we'll have about 150 to 300 kids in that show, depending on the size of the school. And then maybe they'll bring in the fourth and fifth graders and then the kindergartners and first graders afterwards. So it's mm-hmm. usually a, um, a couple different shows at, at any given location. Most of the teachers we work with like to try to get everyone in when they can. Especially right now, since we haven't had a lot of these mm-hmm. uh, shows and, and students haven't had a lot of uh, big assembly type things. I think everyone's excited to just try to get back into it, um, especially the kids. They're very excited. Is the physics circus today kind of pretty much how it was in the past? Other than the whole streaming thing, is did it start the same way that you're describing with these same types of demos? You know, that's a great question. A lot of our history is uh, sort of oral tradition. We don't have a whole lot of it written down. And hmm. since the turnover rate is fairly high, a lot yeah. of information gets lost between uh, coordinator to coordinator. Yeah. From what I understand, we've changed our script and our show quite drastically from when we started. When was that, but, by the way? Oh, that's another great question. I was hoping you weren't going to ask me. Okay. No, if it's an urban legend, that's okay. That's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not certain. Okay. I'd have to uh, – we have a uh, old patron of ours, uh, one of those sort of uh, very venerable professors who seems to have been around since the dawn of time, <laughs> who is very interested in our work. And I think we're going to see him sometime this semester. He's since retired. And maybe I can uh, get him to remember when it happened, if he was even here. But it's been at least a decade. It might be longer. Yeah, it's just interesting to me because the word circus – to me, it makes me think of old-timey shows, you know, with trapeze artists and everything. So I don't know how old. A ringleader. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Exactly, exactly. So, Joseph, can you tell me more about why you do this? I mean, I get a sense of it already, but, like, why are you part of the physics circus as opposed to just focusing on your your research and your PhD? Sure. So coming into it, I did a lot of similar work in undergrad, like a lot of our presenters I did some outreach stuff. I was involved in a couple different clubs and had fun with it. So I went to the first meeting uh, when I first got here for the physics circus. This was pre-pandemic and hung out with some of the people and had a good time. And I figured might as well throw a couple hours of this a week, see what happens. And then eventually I got asked about taking over as coordinator for one of the students who was getting ready to graduate. Mm -hmm. And... At first, I'm not sure I could give you a great answer as to why, other than I felt like it. But since then, I, I've kind of honed in on it. It's 
it's uh, it's been a pandemic of its own, not a health one, but a um a sort of a people one in science and STEM and particularly in physics about mm-hmm. making sure that we can engage and um, recruit people that aren't just white men. And you know, and I say this as a white man too, which uh, might be a little bit hypocritical, but we need more people in science and at a minimum we need more people to be able to engage in science and not be afraid of it and to understand what science is and what it can do for us. Mm-hmm. And so part of that is going to be trying to get more people involved. We need people from different backgrounds. We need all genders. We need all people to be involved. And then likewise, we need those who aren't going to be involved to still be able to see and recognize science and what it can do for us. There needs to be a better connection between scientists and the general public. And so I think that's why I do it. I want to try to help fix this problem that's existed uh, since about Aristotle, I think. Hmm. There are a lot of teachers nowadays who are burnt out Mm -hmm. doing a lot of the work that you've been doing. And I'm wondering what helps you, what has helped you keep going through those hard times in the pandemic? What's going to help you keep on going in physics, not just in the physics circus, but just what helps you keep going yourself with all these challenges that we're all facing? I'll let me say that I definitely understand the uh, getting burnt out. There's always so much to do. uh, And it always seems like problems are not getting better, or at least not getting better fast enough. But uh, when that usually starts to get to me, I'll think to myself or try to convince myself that things are getting better slowly. It might not be as fast as we want it to, but as long as we're still out there trying to do something about it, we're going to solve some of these problems. And mostly it does come back to, I've recognized a problem. And so even if one day or another, I might get a little burnt out and uh, exhausted and have to take a step away. I know that I'm going to get back into it after I've rested a bit because this problem's not going to go away. Whether it's for the physics circus where um, I'm quite devoted to trying to get more people involved in the scientific process or for my mm-hmm. own research. I, I'm a plasma physicist here at UT, so I'm working on nuclear fusion with the sort of pipe dream that one day we can solve the energy crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to not be dependent on fossil fuels anymore. We need to stop uh, burning our own planet. It's boiling alive, so what can we do to fix it? You know, From day to day, I might get frustrated with a physics problem or my research isn't going well, but the next day, I've got to get back into that saddle because that problem is not going away anytime soon. So from my point of view, it's it's a matter of finding a cause that speaks to you and finding what you can do to help that cause. Cool. You mentioned your research in nuclear fusion, um, kind of high-tech stuff, and the physics circus is about the fundamentals of physics and science. Is there any way to incorporate these newer high-tech cutting-edge fields of science? Maybe not nuclear fusion, but... Is there something else that you can introduce to kids that is new and exciting? Probably, yeah. We're kind of working on that, um, especially in regards to interacting with middle school and high schoolers, because there's a trend when you get to high school that you're going to be a bit more cynical. Uh, You're not as excited by the same things that you were anymore. And while maybe we're trying to fix that at the undergrad or at the uh, elementary level, we already have uh, some cynical high schoolers out there. I was one of them, I know. Yes, I think that's a historical yeah. common thing there. 
we need something exciting to get their attention again. And so, yeah, we're working on ways we can bring in more modern, uh, or I, I should say contemporary, because modern physics means something else, more contemporary physics into our discussions and into our demos so that, say, students in middle school or high school, they can look at it and go, hey, when I graduate in a couple of years, and if I decide to go to college, maybe that's something I can ask a professor about. Yeah, no, because I was looking at other folks on your team besides you, Joseph. Like you've got folks working in things that I don't know about nonlinear dynamics. I don't know what that is. Chaos hey, and neither. all of that. <laughs> oh, okay. So it's one of those fields. But basically, it's like all this stuff that sounds cool. If because I'm also a word nerd, and mm-hmm. the word chaos, throw that on anything, and that sounds cool to me. But I don't know how you could possibly explain that to me, let alone a five-year-old. Yeah. For some of it, it's just impossible, right? I mean, you can't even explain it to me. And uh, this is what I do for a living. A lot of the work done, especially contemporaneously, is so micro-focused now. And we're looking at things on a level that you couldn't even conceive of 100 years ago that there's there's almost no way you could explain it. I mean, you'd have to you'd have to hope that these five uh, uh these fifth graders, these fourth graders that they know calculus, that they can understand uh nonlinear dynamics like you said, which I don't understand. They they have to be able to know um quantum interactions, quantum physics. Mm-hmm, you, you mm-hmm. it's something you have to build towards. Uh sure. you you'd have to take a week just to explain it to me. So I don't know how I'd explain it to them. But some of this other stuff, we probably could try. I I think you mentioned it might be hard to bring nuclear fusion to a show, and I agree. But we might be able to bring plasma to a show. And that okay. ties in with the states of matter. We know solid, liquid, and gas. But maybe we can bring a small vacuum chamber and make a plasma in front of the kids. That might not be too difficult and it'd be exciting. That's definitely something... Um, that is on our to-do list, figure out these new things that we can do. Cool, cool. And it makes me think that if you all worked with teachers more or or if other educators gave you tips, you could probably get a lot more cool stuff made. And I'm wondering, how can people support you? How can they contact you, find out more about you? Well, the easiest way, if you're in the Austin area, is to just email our uh, circus at physics.utexas.edu email and set up a show or set up a time to talk like this and we can chat you can give us ideas we can share with you and we can come and give you a show if you're outside the austin area but you want to know more or you want to talk with us the same email works circus at physics.utexas.edu and we can take in whatever you have to say what's what's really nice is that we're supported through the university so we can Mm -hmm. do this at no cost Mm -hmm. to the schools around us which especially helps with title one schools which uh, gets into our goal of wanting to make science accessible to everyone. So we really don't require too much in the way of financials. We have enough money that we can order what we need. Most of it is actually just time and manpower. So if you know of a cool demo or you've done something in your classroom that got your kids excited and you just wanted to share with us, we'd be more than happy to take it in and try to make it a part of our show too. Because at the end of the day, we don't have a, an exclusivity uh, waiver yeah. or anything like that. We're we're all working for the same goal. We just want to make kids excited about science again. That's a cool thing, I guess, about working with the university. Pretty much everything you're doing is is public in a way. Mm-hmm. Like your YouTube videos, all this stuff, teachers can like use any knowledge that you have in their own classrooms. Absolutely, yep. 
you don't even have to ask our permission. It's just up there. Cool, cool. Hey, so Joseph, thank you so much for taking time to speak to me. And I hope a lot of people check out what you do. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. That was Joseph Ziegel, one of the coordinators for the Physics Circus. Check the show notes for links to some of what we talked about. You can also find the links on the podcast website, artisanally coded and programmed by yours truly. Find it at k12engineering.net. The K-12 Engineering Education Podcast is produced by my indie studio, Pios Labs, in Austin, Texas. Pios Labs fosters growth in engineering and education through edtech, digital media, games, and professional development. Follow Pios Labs everywhere to stay updated. That's P-I-O-S-L-A-B-S. And help me out. Leave a rating and review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It takes a minute and it lets other people know about the show. Thanks again to the patrons of this show on Patreon. You can donate to the show too, which lets me keep it up on the internet. Go to patreon.com slash pioslabs. So take care, listener. Until next time. <laughs>